We don't actually think in data and statistics, we think in stories. Our minds are governed by narratives. The narratives are infected by various biases. Those narratives are very hard to shake once they're there. And if you present someone with a fact that contradicts the narrative they have in their head, they're either hostile to it or it just, just doesn't fit. Like if you took a piece to one puzzle and tried to, try to jam it into another puzzle. It's like they just, there's no place for it. The way we process reality is through story. This is Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast. Here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing, stop guessing. If you're ready to unlock reality and reach your full potential, then this show is for you. I'm Danny Wasserman, coming to you from the Gong Studios. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Danny the Rev Wasserman, back to you for what will be one of the podcast's most historic recordings. And I don't say that with any shred of hyperbole. When we did this episode, it was actually transcontinental. We had three people in the studio, albeit remote. Yours truly coming to you from Europe in Dublin specifically. Our next guest stateside and our third guest over in Israel. And perhaps you're starting to connect the dots for who's in the room. But let me tell you a little bit about why I think this was one of the more unforgettable exchanges we had in the Gong Studios. Starting with our first guest. This individual, as you'll hear in my opening bit for the podcast, has set the standard for what it means to be not just a financial journalist, but an actual journalist of all topics at hand that challenge conventional wisdom. And his ability to string together an absolutely riveting story at a topic that we ordinarily overlook has set him apart. A numerous New York Times bestselling author who has then had multiple pieces converted into absolutely legendary blockbuster movies. We're talking about The Blind Side. We're talking about Moneyball. We're talking about The Big Short. Folks, how the heck did we get Michael Lewis on the podcast? Well, let me tell you a little bit about why. There's a history between Michael, who also happens to host his own podcast, and Gong. He interviewed Gong's CEO and co-founder, Amit Bendoff, who really has done everything to embody one of the organization's founding precepts, challenge conventional wisdom, and how he has led Gong over the last eight years to totally unearth new insights for how go-to-market teams can coach and train their sellers, their leaders, and apply those insights by capturing what is exchanged between sellers and customers to product, to marketing, and the list of teams influenced by this technology go on and on. What I like so much about this exchange, which is really driven by Amit, who's asking all the questions of Michael, is that we begin to understand that in Michael's experience, he finds that people are more attracted to stories than facts in isolation. And what he describes storytelling as is the combination of, yes, using facts alongside personal experience and our own bias as human beings. And in the thinking, well, what are the stories that Michael has told that are really most unforgettable? Let's take Moneyball as an example. Billy Bean, who leads the Oakland A's against all odds to a historic season by applying data and deep scientific analysis to how they strategically compete against larger clubs with much bigger payrolls. What Michael tells us is that if you're going to be bold and daring to do something new for the first time, you need to anticipate that in challenging the status quo, 
in undermining the way things have been done for years, if not decades or generations, you need to anticipate that you're going to encounter resistance and objection. And in boldly taking on that risk, you need to be armed with the fortitude, the audacity, and sometimes, yes, the data to fight back. Yes, again, because data is such a powerful antidote against preconceived notions, yes, it's critical that we come into this new approach to doing something with data. But as we talked about before, storytelling is not singularly a list of facts, but it's how we contextualize those facts alongside personal experience. I have no idea what I'm doing in this room with Amit and Michael. I'm grossly out of my depth. So what I'll tell you is this. It's one for the books. I hope you enjoy it. And with that said, DJ, spin that. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Welcome back to, I would say ordinarily, the Gong Studios. But in fact, no, I'm coming to you today from across the pond in Dublin at a temporary studio, but nonetheless, equally excited for what has become our first ever transcontinental broadcast, one that will go down in the history books because I'm going to tell you first about one of our guests. And yes, we have two that are in the house. So let's start with John Williams' quote to describe this seminal contributor to our understanding of finance, money, and all things that challenge conventional wisdom. Here's what he says about our first guest. I would read an 800-page history of the stapler if this guy wrote it. Over a 34-year career with his first piece of literature, Liar's Poker, published in 1989 to his most recent piece, Uncovering the History of Sam Bankman-Fried and the Collapse of FTX. We've got someone who, in between those bookends, has put out numerous bestsellers that went on to become blockbusters, including but not limited to Moneyball at the Blind Side and, of course, The Big Short. Along the way, he hosts his own podcast, which leads me to our next guest, who is a guest on this individual's podcast a few years ago. We've got Michael Lewis, who a few years ago interviewed the CEO and co-founder of Gong, Amit Bendov. Amit, clearly, you do not need any introduction, having had Gong for four years running, be on the Forbes Cloud 100 list, numerous years on the Fortune's top places to work, and recognized by LinkedIn. I don't know what I'm doing in this room. The imposter syndrome is crippling, so it's time for me to shut up and yield the floor to Amit. It is just an absolute pleasure and just privilege to listen to you guys both talk about whatever the hell we're going to talk about. But Amit, over to you, man. Well, thank you, Danny. And, and uh, pleasure to be here with you, Michael. It's a real honor. Um, thanks for joining us today. Well, I, I love the conversation we had a few years ago, so I'm looking forward to it. Yes, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited on so many levels. First, like you're one of the first to uh, recognize Gong. And I remember you called it like a uh, money bowl for, uh, for sales, uh, which... Uh, even before we met, I was like, uh, first, you know, I watched the movie probably like, you know, six or seven times. Uh, and and I used that, uh, you know, I really found connection because when I started researching before starting Gong, you know, one of the things I noticed, if you go to Amazon and you search for books on sales, there's like 13,000 of them, like um, last time I checked. Um but none of them is actually based on data. It's like what people think, right? And the quote that I always like, uh, like is always like tattooed in my brain, like you don't have a crystal ball, right? 
people are saying stuff and they're advising, but without actually uh, actually knowing. And uh, the ability to connect data and facts uh, to make an informed decision uh, has been like uh, huge for us. Uh, so I'm I'm super excited and uh, couldn't be more honored. Uh, well, I mean, there's a reason for this, right? People never, until the age of data, people didn't really have the ability to, or even the inclination to, apply the scientific method to all sorts of things, and that's that's what you're doing with sales. And I thought I thought it was riveting. You, you came up in our in the season of our podcast where we were addressing the power of coaching and this, and new forms that coaching was taken had taken. But you could e e just as easily come up in the the following season of the podcast, which was about experts. It's like there's a, there's, there is a one of the reasons the coaching was so powerful is there was a new form of expertise taking shape where you could actually tell people like how many questions should you ask in a conversation or should you curse when you're talking to when you're trying to to sell something all those things i i just found you know it's 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 it was a week i i thought of it as the money ball for sales because you were doing in in your in your sphere what billy bean had been doing in baseball which was creating new knowledge like and then and the power the power of that's incredible and also just interesting you know it, it always sometimes the new knowledge sort of confirms the old wisdom and sometimes it challenges it but at least you have a you have a starting point for a, a, a different kind of conversation exactly I mean, the common theme, I think, in like at least like a few of your books, if I uh, go like into like a premonition or or, or Moneyball and and uh, like even Big Short is that uh, there's lots of uh, objections to uh, evidence and data, even if it's right in front of you, right? That not everybody expects uh, uh, accepts. And uh, why do you think that is? So there's a there's a five hour answer to this question and there's a two minute answer to this question. I'm going to give you the two minute answer to the question. I think the two minute answer to the question is we don't actually think in data and statistics. We think in stories and um, that our, our minds are governed by narratives and then the narratives are infected by various biases. Um, those narratives are very hard to shake once they're there. And if you present someone with a fact, that contradicts the narrative they have in their head. They they're either hostile to it or it's just just doesn't fit. Like it doesn't fit the way if you took a piece to one puzzle and tried to try to jam it into another puzzle. It's like they just there's no place for it. So it's the it's it's the that are the way we the way we process reality is through story, um, not through data. And not through analysis, not through people, human beings are not naturally statistical machines. Your fellow Israelis, uh, Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky, I wrote a book about this, The Undoing Project, spent the better part of their careers showing the ways that uh, people, even when they were given a problem to which there was a statistically correct and solvable, like, like it was a solvable problem and there was a statistically correct answer. Defaulted to some story rather than the statistically correct answer, and so people do that over and over. Now it's forgivable, right? Because it's forgivable for all sorts of reasons. But but 
it's not until fairly recently was it easy to gather, access, analyze data, essentially do the statistics in places. Um, so that story was all you had. Um, but now we, now we have more. And so there's this collision that's going on in, 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 in all these different uh, human activities. And, and it's why, I mean, it's why, I mean, money, I wrote Moneyball 20 years ago. It's why it's still in the air because that collision keeps happening in, 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 in places you just would never expect it to happen. Right. It's interesting because like uh, uh, narrative and stories has been with us for like hundreds of thousands of years, at least. Right. And, and data is a fairly new new phenomenon, or at least like data at, at scale and, and used uh, in day to day. What do you command? Let's say if I work in an organization and I have like a, a strong evidence and and believe uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in a direction, but I'm fighting a narrative. Right, that's someone that just refuses to see. What's the best way to get someone to see what they refuse to see? It's really hard. There's not an there is this is there's not a simple answer to this. I mean, let's continue with the Moneyball analogy. This is how complicated it is that even after, even when the boss of the organization has bought in to we're going to our decision-making is going to be driven by data, um, not by story, not by the intuitive judgment of our scouts. And even when the organization has succeeded beyond wildest expectations using these methods, the people in the organization still resist the methods. So if there were a simple answer to that question, like the Oakland A's would not have been having fights within the Oakland A's five years into, the, into their experiment, experiment with using data instead of scout judgment to make, to make a lot of big decisions. So I don't think there's this, I don't actually think there's some easy answer to this. I think that, and in fact, I do think um, that some people just are comfortable with the database discussion and some people just aren't and the people who aren't you know in the case of in, in the in the case of moneyball and the Oakland A's the only way that you kind of brought them around to your way of thinking was by shouting at them that it was it, 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 billy billy bean was imposing reason with violence which is a really weird thing to do um so so if you said okay michael Please give me the next best answer. All right, there's no perfect answer to this. I would say that really the only thing that beats story is another story. And so you've got to take the data and weave it into a, another, a story. Uh, you can't just present the data. Uh, use it to tell a different story. And that story might trump the first story. Um, but this is not – there's no – I mean, I don't know what you've run. I'm curious what you've run across, right? You are presenting to people who think you say there are, you know, 13,000 books on sales. And just like baseball, lots of people who are very good salespeople or, or lots of people think they know what the best way to sell is. You, you walk in and you say, actually, no, you should be talking less and listening more. Or you should ask, be asking more questions or you should not be cursing or whatever it is you're saying to them. What, hap what happens then? You must have arguments, right? Absolutely. So we actually showed uh, data and tried to uh, keep it in a very simple way, just like like not like a like a huge philosophy, but you know one thing. Here's like a fact. Here's the data with and without kind of control group, and it's a way that's hard hard to ignore. Actually, people 
people like that. There's still um, people think that sales is an art, right? Uh, you know who wrote the art of the deal? Like uh, one of the uh, the U.S. presidents. Uh, yes. I said, like, no, art actually belongs in a museum, right? Uh, uh, we use the word art to uh, describe things that are that we don't fully understand, right? It's like it's not uh, different from uh, magic or witchcraft, right? And our mission is to chip into that every time carve a uh, piece of data but to make also, to make to make sales less of an art. Yes, yeah, and, and more of a science. And more science. It is like most things are ex- explainable, right? It's just stuff that we don't know yet, right? But we will one day. Um, and I also think it's it's uh, it's part of it. There's our education system. Uh, our kids learning stuff that isn't relevant, but the basic things about data, just uh, just probabilities, uh, how do we understand a survey? I mean, there are a lot of fake news right now. People are using surveys. How to really understand what's being asked, uh, how to interpret the data. Uh, there is like um, when the iPod first came out, uh, people say, oh, Steve Jobs kind of deal with Elton John because like the random shuffle always like plays Elton John. And they don't know that actually that's true randomness. Through randomness, you could get like five times Elton John. Yeah. And that that's so they created like to a human uh, narrative of uh, of uh, randomness. We aren't intu- we aren't intuitively statistical. Yes. Right. That's right. This problem just this problem that creates all sorts of problems when a statistical based understanding walks into the room. But if we yeah. teach the kids at school, right, this is an age where they can learn and this is something that is so useful, like in day-to-day, just for understanding risk, to weigh in different options, like that, that's such a useful skill that we're not, uh, um, we're not teaching. He also, uh, when we spoke, it was like about like coaching and, and uh, expertise. Now, there's obviously the resistance to, uh, to data that a lot of people just don't understand or it doesn't fit their narrative, but there's also sometimes opposition to, uh, to experts. You think it's, it's kind of the same thing or there's a, there's a nuance to that. So I think the, the resistance to a statistical understanding of a matter is one of the, is one category of resistance to experts. So there's a, so you, across a society, there's a rise of a different kind of expert. Simple example would be Nate Silver in political analysis, going back to, you know, 2008 when Using better analysis, better data, he made sensational predictions about what was going to happen in not just the presidential election, but all the congressional elections. And overnight, uh, 538's born, everybody's sort of like, oh, my God, he knows something that the old, the, 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 the political pundits on TV uh, kind of don't know. But, but it also, he faced enormous hostility and resistance and still does to this day. The assault with that, and so where that comes, where the resistance comes from, is it is perceived is Nate Silver's expertise in that moment is perceived not unreasonably as an assault on experience. That he, it, it's it's uh, all of a sudden the people who are being paid to be pundits on cable news are, are made to feel like they don't know what they're talking. He's saying they don't know what they're talking about. So that that and the, so that, that war breaks out. It's a form of the Moneyball Wars. So that's just one. That is one form the resistance takes. There are other forms, though. You know, here's a a really great way to dramatize 
that and another form of the of the resistance to expertise. If you talk to ancient weathermen, like people who've been on the television for 45 years, they, they will tell you that their lot, there's a mystery at the, in their lives. And it's that if you go back 45 years ago, or that they, they actually knew very little, that their predictions were not great, that not much better than going outside and looking up at the sky and then coming back in and saying it's sunny and probably will stay sunny for a little bit. And, and, and over time, weather prediction has gotten much more, much more sophisticated. It's unbelievable, actually. If you went back I don't know, 50 years and said, guess what they're going to be able to do in 50 years? People would say, no way. They're not going to be able to with us with degrees of, you know, assign degrees of uncertainty, but also be able to tell you what the weather is going to be three days from now. Um, people would be just very skeptical. The weathermen will tell you that back in the day when they knew very little, they were, they were still, they were treated with great respect. <laughs> And and that as they've learned more and more, they're delivering more and more actual knowledge to their customers, to their listeners. But the listeners are more and more angry about and skeptical of them towards them, and 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 more and more inclined to jump jump on them when they get something wrong. So it's sort of the curse of actually of of understanding that, like in your world in sales, let's say you get to the point where you're quite precise about what people can do. But you get one thing wrong. Right. This, that you're going to go from, oh, my God, he's actually introduced some knowledge to us where you are now. Oh, my God. Just tell our people not to curse until the customer curses first. Uh, these are some great insights to, to, oh, Christ. I mean, they screwed up. Gong screwed up. There was a, there's a mistake in Gong. So the, it's sort of like the, we're holding them to such higher standards because they've actually gotten so much better. Expertise has gotten better across a lots of dimensions. There's a, a, a another aspect to this, and I don't want to just monologue about this. I can go on forever, but but it is, it's that um, a lot of referees are put in the position of a lot of experts are put being put in the position of referees, judges, ba you know, basketball sports refs, um, and the refereeing position is just increasingly under attack because of. Just general, I don't mean just political polarization, but polarization that this, this, this tendency in the culture for people to tribe up, take sides, anchor in the, in whatever opinion they have, whether it's they root for this team rather than that team or that politician rather than this politician or, or, you know, two sides of a war, uh, everything has become a religious dis dis dispute. And so the, a lot of experts find themselves in the middle of these disputes and the ones, both sides have an interest in eroding the authority of the expert in, 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 in any given instance. So it's a curious situation when broadly speaking, experts get better and better. And broadly speaking, most people probably think they're worse and worse and trust them less and less. Right. It's a, it's a combination. There are two trends, uh, you know, I connect with what you said about the uh, uh, expect holding uh, experts to higher standards, right? If you think of, you know, AI, uh, take a look at uh, self-driving cars. Yep. Right? Uh, you know, one Tesla crashes, right? And then it gets like a, a front page in all the newspapers. Now, people crash like a lot more. Yes. Right? They're worse, we're a worse driver than the yes. self-driving cars. But you right. have perfection. It's hard to accept that something that you expect to work better actually like uh, messes up once, and second is kind of the wealth of 
uh, uh, misinformation and disinformation that's available on on the uh, social media today that actually has a polarizing and almost creates more ignorance than uh, than uh, knowledge. Well, there's there's certainly because there's a uh, there's a constituency for every argument. There's some constituency that's hostile to self-driving cars. And the minute the self-driving driving car screws up or they're, or it's more likely they're hostile to Elon Musk. Yeah. And, uh, and so, so they, they can amplify this thing where, but the background, the background facts are that a million people a year die in automobile accidents around the world. And, and it's just sort of like, that's the air we breathe. Um, and it, so it is, it, 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 that's an extraordinary example of this, of this phenomenon. Yeah. So, so there's, a, there's another thing going on. And in my most recent book, uh, Going Infinite, the book I read about Sam Bankman-Fried, it was a, a dystopic form of this thing. But one of the things that emerges from the whole Moneyball approach to the world is a, is a kind of... Uh, maybe unintentional, but nevertheless unignorable um, denigration of experience. That it, if the data is just going to give you the answers, who, who you know, who cares what you know from your lifetime in baseball? That you you've you spent fifty years in the minor leagues and you know playing, and you have all this felt knowledge and intuition, and along comes a guy with a laptop, and he says, "None of that matters. This this here's the real answer." And um, and the Sam Bankman-Fried was an extreme case of this, and took it in all kinds of wrong directions. But one way to think about the way he went through the world, and he really did go through the world this way, is is thinking that nobody's experience actually had anything to teach him, that everything could be reduced to numbers and probability and an expected value calculation. That as a result, the adults who walked into his life, into the room and tried to exercise any kind of influence over him were dismissed and eventually just not ever let into the room. Um, so the, there is this, this other thing going on, collision between people with experience and people without experience and the people without experience using the rise of data and analytics as a kind of status move. Um, and we saw where this ended up with FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. So this is a this is an observation that there is a thing going on right now that and I wonder if you see it in your life that yes better data, better analytics, better asking asking questions of the data in an intelligent way leads you to actual insights about how to sell something. Nevertheless, you would not claim that you've learned everything there is to know. And there are these people out there who are unbelievable salespeople. Quite possibly, they know things you have not divined from the data. And there's things to learn from their experience, even if they don't know quite how to put it, even if they don't know how to exactly replicate themselves. And I think, I think we ignore those people at our peril. That there is, there's, there's still an human, human experience is very complicated. The human mind is very complicated. Things, things, there are things to learn from people who, who might themselves not have a whole lot of time for data and analytics. Right. There's, there's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a tricky ba to balance these things, right? And uh, I always, you know, think about when I hire people. There's obviously advantages to hire someone like very experienced. Uh, because they've been there, done that, they know what they could get in. But 
Uh, there's also an advantage uh, in hiring someone who doesn't have the experience that uh, don't know that uh, they can't defy gravity. Yes. They'll try and they might be successful. Yes. Uh, uh, it's good to get like uh, a good mix. And I totally get it that the, uh, the data, the data itself doesn't tell a story. You need to understand the world. Uh, uh, and that there's also, it reminds me, like a quote from uh, like a scene from uh, Goodwill Hunting, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Robin Williams towards the end says like, "Well, you know, you know what the uh, uh, the fresco on a sixteenth chapel looks like, but you can't, you never smell the paint, right? It's like you, you, all you know is from the books, right? There is there is a real real world, and you need to connect uh, to connect both." Telling a story about your brand is a great way to get people interested and involved with what you're doing. As we heard from Michael, our brains are hardwired to stick to and react to stories. Well, Marketing Words blog in 2023 found that 55% of customers are more likely to remember a story than a laundry list of facts. Think about it. Aren't most social interactions involving the recounting of personal stories that help deepen, if not create, relationships between individuals. Yeah, it's because those stories are more engaging than hard numbers. And again, we're not here to poo-poo those facts. We need those as well. But as it turns out, Search Engine Watch found that stories can increase conversion rates by up to 30%. Not only that, we are drawn to this type of dialogue. Rain Group found that sales reps who use storytelling are 22% more likely to close a deal. So yes, whether it's personal or commercial relationships, it's been proven that stories alongside facts help convert. Let's get back to Michael and Amit and hear a little bit more about the intersection between storytelling and business. I got to ask you, like, uh, I'm sure like everybody's curious. I mean, you're a prolific writers uh, and, and uh, you know, I don't know how you, you do all of that uh, and, and not just writer, like great work, like uh, uh, one after the other. First, um, how do you get like everything done? What's kind of your, your, your productivity uh, secrets that you're willing to share? And second, um, you know, will was it gone? We try to like uh, hone our craft, become better. That uh, we're we're better like every time. How do you how do you improve? Well, that's that's an interesting question. So, how do I get everything done? I think of myself as kind of lazy and unreliable. Uh, that, that the it's and that I don't unless I have a deadline, I'm capable of doing nothing. So I just finished I just finished a book tour last week. I don't have a whole lot. I don't really owe anybody anything. And this is a very dangerous period in my life in that I really am capable of just screwing around for months. Um, that I don't feel, I don't feel some internal pressure to produce something. What will happen and what has just happened over and over and again is that I will collide with something that really interests me. I'll start to noodle on it. I'll start to learn about it. I'll eventually call my publisher and they'll eventually say, well, when will you get this to us? And I'll eventually give them a date. And for whatever reason, that date has this huge effect on my life. I've never missed a deadline. Just never, never done it. And, I, and it's just an, some sort of internal rule. So the minute that date is in place, I'm in a state of panic. 
I'm, I'm, I'm just then I then I'm then I become extremely productive. Um, I try to delay the arrival of that date because a lot of useful stuff happens when you don't have pressure, but then a lot of useful stuff happens when you do have pressure. Um, this is, you know, because you're sitting in Israel, Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman are all of a sudden salient to me in a big way. But Amos, apropos of deadlines and productivity, Amos Tversky had this line that occurs to me whenever I have a deadline, but it was in a different context. He had this habit of walking, of, of, of being very ruthless with his time. And if he walked into a situation, decided this was not worth his time, he would just walk out. So he would walk out of dinner parties before the salad was finished, just because this, you know, he, it was rude, but that was just how he was. And someone asked him once, um, like, what, how do you do that? Like, what do you say? And he says, I don't, I, I found that if I just get up and start walking, it's amazing how my mind generates the words I need to give, to, to, to give them an excuse for why I'm walking. That, and it's sort of like, and I do feel deadlines do this for me, that the minute I start walking towards the deadline, the stuff just kind of comes out of me. How do I improve? Um, it, it's, this is largely by feel. Um, I do think about that though. I do think about, I do, this is how I, this is what it is that I do, I do try, um, or think about when I'm deciding what I'm going to write about, will this allow me to hit notes I've never hit before? So it isn't so much, it isn't so much, oh, I'm just going to get better, better. It's, I'm going to be different. Um, try not to write the same. I don't want to write the same book twice. If I, there was a sequel to Moneyball that I was supposed to write. I sold it as two books. And the minute I realized this was just the same thing all over again, that I just, after two years of work, I walked away from it. So avoiding, I would say that's my big thing is that I avoid doing the same thing twice. It may not look that way to you. It might look to you like I'm just singing the same song over and over. But in my mind, the books are all different from one another. They're presenting different challenges. Um, so there's one other thing about improving it's in the, the, the physical literary in a, in my, in the way, in my writing, the, the, the physical analogy would be cross training. Um, the, in addition to writing the books you read, I, I write podcasts. Those, those are the, the podcast I did with you was scripted. I actually had to write it out and perform it. And I write, uh, film and TV scripts. The film and TV scripts are exercising this muscle that it's, you've got to visualize everything and you've got to compress everything. So you've got to see pictures in your head because that's the information that the audience has, the pictures in their head. And there's a lot of words that are unnecessary when you know they have a picture to go with it. And with the podcast, it's, it's directed to the ear as, as opposed to the eye. And the ear is a different kind of instrument than the eye. The ear is more emotional. Like people, people hear tone. They hear... It's easier to make people laugh, make them cry if you're going through their ear than through their eye. Easier to deliver complicated explanations through the eye. If I tried to explain a collateralized debt obligation here on this podcast, it would be a catastrophe. But on the page, you can kind of do it. Um, but working those muscles, the, the writing for the ear and also writing for the, the, that visualization mechanism bleeds back into my books. I can see it makes a difference. Um, so that's another way I improve. Third way would be pro is pro actually process. 
Um, it's like realizing that, which I did years ago, that if I read my work aloud, uh, before the printed work, um, I'll catch stuff that I wouldn't catch if I didn't read it aloud. So that's a pro you know adding to things to the process. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. No. Yeah. Super. Uh, super. Super helpful. I'm sure everybody would would appreciate. It. So, you know, you wrote a lot about the uh, um, data, um, evidence, and experts, and now we're entering like the era of AI, which yep. kind of uses both. You have an expert that um, is either like easy to um, agree with or easy to disagree with, right? Kind of mm -hmm. both. Do you, do you have any thoughts like where, where this is going uh, and uh, what's the next chapter? Uh, where artificial intelligence is going? Uh, well, more of the impact um, on our world. Um, my first thought, so this is, I, I'm an ignoramus. You're, so you're getting the ignoramus's view of AI. It's like natural stupidity trying to get its mind around it, artificial intelligence. Um, but the first thing I did when, when everybody, we all at once paid, started to pay attention to this when chat GPT-3 came out, is I asked it to write the first chapter uh, in a book about Sam Bankman fried by Michael Lewis and in my style. And it generated something. And it was so bad in so many ways that, you know, it, it was, it was, the phenomenon was the dog, the famous dog walking on its hind legs analogy. Like the wonder isn't that it does it well, but is that, that it does it at all. Yes, it was amazing. It even tried, but it was so bad. It wasn't even the idea of the book that it didn't have any, only information it had was the information that was on the web. You know, you just couldn't. It just felt preposterous. So I, it was like, really, is this something we're going to actually start to worry about replacing us? But then I watched my son use it for his homework and, uh, and it was encouraged, you know, it wasn't sneaking around. It was like, you know, maybe you do your first draft this way. And at that level, when you're just summarizing existing material, it, it was surprisingly useful. Um, and so the first, my first thought was, well, that's what it's going to do. It's going to, it's going to in the first in, instance, it's going to replace lots of really boring jobs, like tasks, tasks that people don't really want to do, that don't add, where you're the human, and they don't want to do it because the human being is not adding all that much to it, like summarizing a book you read. Um, that's going to, that's going to, it's going to free up life to, for more interesting things or, or for total inactivity. Um I'm sure it'll get better. And, and I, I don't know. And, and of course, what everybody says, it's going to get better very fast. And we're going to be shocked by how much better it gets. Um, as it gets better, I assume the, the low-hanging fruit, it'll start gobbling up fruit higher up, a little higher up in the tree. Slightly less boring jobs will start to be, or tasks will be replaced by this thing. When it gets to me, which is really what I, I'm interpreting this question as how it's going to affect me. Um, I kind of think never. And I tell you why I kind of think never. I mean, may, maybe like a hundred years from now. But if, if I were to write a book that had, that most of which you could just find on the web, that would be a very bad book. It would be so unlike any book I've ever written. What I do is go find stuff that, you know, that's my job. It's going out, 
In fact, what AI is, if you think about it this way, it's a wonderful affirmation of the importance of reporting. And the, or, or put it another way, the importance of research and searching on your own and going out in the world and talking to people and, and using your senses to, to, to organize the world in a new way. Because um, at the end of my process, when I sit down to write a book, most of the stuff I'm writing, you couldn't find it on Google. You, Google wasn't in the meeting I was in or didn't watch the scene I watched or didn't observe this little interaction between two people that is incredibly revealing. And, and so AI, if it's not there already, AI can't do anything with it, which isn't to say that AI might not try to take my book the day after it comes out and put it out of business. Um, it may have a commercial effect. But the the effect on like the challenge to what I do doesn't feel doesn't feel like a threat. It feels like in some way maybe one day it'll be slightly useful to me as like a research assistant. Absolutely, yeah. It, it, it's not great with the creative stuff. I think where where it could right. You know, you spoke earlier about the narrative. Narrative. You know, we can think of a blank page and as like a lot of dots, right? And narrative. I'm connecting it like almost like uh, connect the dots and I'm telling a story. Uh, but there are different ways uh, to do it that it could uh, could show us how to do it. I wasn't yeah, no, so totally. It, I mean, it, you know, it's funny you say that. It, the way that it finds new ways to play chess, right? It never occurred to a human being that you could play chess. Those moves would work. Um, that it could. It, there's, it can try every every possible version of storytelling, and something might turn up that no human being had conceived of. Um, Absolutely. I'll be impressed when it does that. It hasn't done it yet, but it, but that's right. That might happen. It, well, the chess is like where it's doing it, but it definitely do it on on, uh, on data as well. I'm pretty sure. We're we're getting close to our our, uh, our time, but uh, anything you can share about kind of your next uh, next project? At this very moment, I'm on my way to meetings in Los Angeles to talk about a TV show that I sold Apple. And it's a drama. It's a, it's a fictional, it's a fictionalization of an article I wrote in Vanity Fair years ago, uh, about the man who invented the market for Cuban baseball players. And he, he and it was, he was a human bridge over which the first Cubans escaped, uh, to, and played in the early nineties and played professional baseball. They didn't think they could. And he sort of persuaded them they were good enough. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's like a wonderful American story. And the question is, and I've written the script. I'm about to write a summary of the, of the show. And in the next month, I'll know whether they're going to do it or not. And if they do it, it's probably the next couple of years of my life. Um, other than that, I have half a dozen, like very beginnings of ideas that might be books, but I, I've got to kind of wait because, because if I have, if I'm running a TV show, I don't have time to write a book. Um, Something will walk in. Something always does. Well, we'll keep our uh, uh, fingers uh, crossed and we'll call Tim Cook to uh, get the deal done. <laughs> you know, I hope when you're in San Francisco, it would occur to you to just shoot me a note and we can go grab dinner sometime. I would. Uh, no, I, would I, would love, I would love to do that. Uh, I mean, yeah. you're going to keep learning stuff. You, yes. you're, you're, you're like an ongoing story. And, and I really kind of want to keep my, I would like to not be too far away from it. All right. Uh, it's a deal. All right. Michael, thank you so much. Danny, yep. great having you. And uh, thank you to our audience. Uh, that was a great episode. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Reveal. 
you want more resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high-performing sales teams, then head on over to gong.io. And if you like what you heard, well, go ahead, give us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen.